In our last podcast with Karen Chenoweth discussing her new book, Districts That Succeed, Jeff simply was not able to squeeze in his questions into just one sitting. Fortunately, she was gracious enough to come back for part two. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders, how are you? I am Jeff Rose. Welcome back to Leader Chat. And today is a first. I'm not going to say it's going to be the last, but we've never done what we're doing today, which is inviting uh, one of our experts, our authors, etc., back. And the reason we're inviting Karen Chenoweth back, and she'll be joining us here any minute, is that the, the book that we were discussing, her most recent book, Districts That Succeed, um, I'm, just, I'm just not done inquiring about. I knew going into this conversation that I was going to have too many questions. There's too much content to break down in 35 minutes. We went over last time, and I still had questions on the table. So I emailed Karen and said, is there any chance we could do a part two? And she so graciously acknowledged uh, the fact that we maybe have more to talk about. She's willing to come back. And so we're excited to have Karen Chenoweth back with us today. Now, if you don't remember Karen, or if you're hearing this for the first time, number one, I recommend you go here and listen to or watch part one first. I think that'll provide context. But as a reminder, Karen Chenoweth is a writer in residence at the Education Trust. This book that we're talking about today, um, which is Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement, it follows up on her last book, which was Schools That Succeed, How Educators Marshal the Power of Systems for Improvement. So uh, once again, without further ado, welcome back, Karen. Thank you so much for being willing to do this again. It's really nice of you. Well, thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, well, like I said, you're, you're the first. So you'll always be the first uh, leader chat person to come back. So thanks for kind of having make it break in this historical moment for us. Um, and I just want to keep asking about this book. There are specific examples that I want to maybe just pull out based upon your experience and your learning and your research, if that's okay. And if it's okay, I just, I'm going to start just diving into questions. Is that, is that cool with you? Sure. Okay, so um, the book, it provides this deep historical context, and which also talks about the kind of the political educational initiatives, describes a pertinent educational research that just paints this vivid picture of these districts and these school systems. Before I go and ask about a couple specifically, when you step, take a step back, what unites these school districts? Because they're so different. I mean, they really are. Right? You have Chicago, which is, you can't really replicate Chicago necessarily, right, for a lot of reasons. Um, but what, what pulls these together? What did you notice as uh, maybe commonalities from one district or one leader to the next? Well, uh, to me, what really stood out was that all the leaders had a very clear idea that all kids can learn. And they have a deep belief in that. Um, and they uh, um, be also believe that it's the responsibility of adults in the system of educators to figure out how to teach them. Uh, none of them is a fluffy utopian idealist. You know, none of them kind of just graduated and uh, 
you know, has lots of big ideas. They have all been in the trenches. They've all been teachers. They've all kind of gone through the really very normal processes of, um, of how educators are trained and what kind of experiences they have. But they have this deep belief that kids can learn and that it's the responsibility of adults to figure out how to teach them. And that's not, you know, they're, they know it's not easy. So they have to build the systems in order to make that most possible. And I, I think there's another thing which I think they all share. I'm just kind of running through them all. I sure. think this is right. They, um, they know that it's impossible for any one teacher or any one educator to know everything necessary to teach every child what every child needs to learn that year or that, you know, that group of years. Um, and, and so they build the systems to create uh, the collaboration that can actually help move every child. So, I mean, they know like there are some kids that just don't mesh with some teachers and they have to adjust for that. Um, they don't think student failure it means that a teacher has necessarily failed it means that something needs to change but not necessarily that you know anyone has done anything wrong sure and so, and i think that is you know really core to being able to move forward because if you if you take away the blame if you like if a kid does, if a kid is failing at something, and you say, "Well, that's the teacher's fault," you, you've now shut. You've really made that a very sclerotic kind of um, uh, position that the teacher is in. Whereas if you say, "Oh, well, what more can we do? Like, what more? What help do you need? What more do you need to know? Uh, what uh, additional?" Uh, resources are necessary for you to succeed with this kid. Like that changes the conversation very dramatically. And I think that's how these leaders think. So what I hear you saying is that um, the, these leaders, which have still hold on to this belief, this why, so to speak, of they believe every kid has this potential to learn and uh, but in the meantime, it's not just hope and passion that's going to deliver right. the system. It's actually uh, a very strategic way of putting together and constantly modifying what needs to be done so that the teachers and the schools can do their best work, which doesn't just happen via the chaos theory. It takes constant tweaking and adjusting and modifying based upon um, gathering information and data so they understand the complications of the work, and yet they maintain this passion and this belief that if districts and schools do the right work by kids, kids can achieve great things. Am I, am exactly. I on the right track? No, exactly. And the reason I put it kind of in that way, and I put the belief first, is this is really hard work. And it's impossible to put the work in if you don't believe you can be successful. If you say, well, you know, like eh, the kids, they come from pretty tough backgrounds. I, 
we're only going to save a couple of them, you know, so we'll focus on figuring out which ones to save and, and, and we'll, you know, do the best we can, but we know we're not going to reach most kids. Well, then you, you're, you're, you're dedicated to setting up a different kind of system. Um, And it's really hard to teach every kid. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of monitoring. Some some of that is boring work. Some of it is tedious work. No one can do that kind of work if you don't see that there can be a benefit. I mean, who's, who, who does all the music scales, like forever, uh, if they don't have some idea of what, you know, Mozart sounds like or, or Beethoven sure. or, you know. Scott Joplin or whatever, right. you know, whatever genre of music you care about, you can't put in the work if if you have no vision of what that can lead to. Does so that make sense? It makes terrific sense. And and as a past superintendent myself of a smaller district, one high school town, uh, kind of a rural environment, and then a suburban environment of about 40 plus thousand kids, and then in a more urban environment of 100,000 students, these districts that you kind of studied, um, they, they resonated in different ways. And so I, we don't have the time to ask about all of them, but there's a couple specifically I want us to just uncover a little bit because I think they, they kind of reveal some really important information for leaders to kind of understand and embrace. And so the first is, um, I'm nervous about saying it correctly, Steubenville in Ohio. Did I say that correctly? Absolutely. So Steubenville, which, um, you know, 26, 2700 kids, uh, but a very kind of unique environment, um, as well as kind of a unique leader. And I was wondering, can you maybe kind of take us through maybe the why? behind this district being one that you highlighted. And uh, just give us the narrative a little bit and talk about what you noticed about their strategies specific to system, because um, I love the story of Steubenville. Uh, well, I do too. It's it's a great story. So first to go back just a minute, I decided to use the analysis of Sean Reardon at Stanford University um, uh, to identified districts, but I had been to Steubenville several times and, um, and I had wanted to do the district story. I had done some school story, uh, stuff from Steubenville, Steubenville, but, um, but I had wanted to look at them as a district. And so when I saw that they showed up in Sean Reardon's analysis as a real outlier, I was, delighted because sure. then I could, I could say, Oh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's because of Sean Reardon, but in fact, it was, it was a combination um, of prior knowledge plus Sean Reardon's data. And I asked him about it actually at a, at a conference. And I said, well, you know, what do you know about Steubenville? And he said, I really want to know about Steubenville. I like, what are they doing? Um, so, so I felt very, uh, confident in being able to write about Steubenville. So Steubenville, the reason I had been to Steubenville was one of its elementary schools was one of the top performing schools in the state. And it was very high poverty, Wells Elementary. And, um, I had visited a couple of times. The principal there was, um, Melinda Young. 
And then over the years, I kept in touch with her and she became the federal uh, grants administrator. Uh, so Steubenville, like many small districts, um, is under-resourced, uh, sort of typically under-resourced. It's in Appalachian, Ohio. It's just across the Ohio River from West Virginia. And um, uh, they have been very reliant on grants for a long time. And so they they that is a very important job in Steubenville, the Federal Grants Administrator. And... Um, so she went from principal to federal grants administrator and now as superintendent. Um, but when I first went there, uh, Richard Ranallo was the superintendent and I spoke with him by the phone, by phone. I didn't meet with him at that point. I met with him much later and it's one of my favorite stories. He, um, uh, I had, I had said, I, I really want to meet with you. And by this time he was retired. Uh, and, uh, he said, okay, that's fine. Uh, and so we met in this little middle school conference room and I got there with my, uh, uh, then co-author, Christina Theokas, my, my colleague, and she and I were just sort of astounded as the room filled up with, uh, principals, assistant principals, some teachers, um, other sort of central office administrators. They don't have that many administrators in Steubenville, but the whole place kind of like uh, uh, everybody on this call knows what a middle middle school conference room is like. It's, you know, not that big. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's not. <laughs> so we're sitting there and I put my little tape recorder down and, and he starts and, and we start sort of hearing his story and his story, he, he had this, wonderful gravelly voice um and he started talking about how he had grown up in steubenville steubenville is a flat it's got a flat part right next to the river and then it goes up up the hill and so he he talked about growing up in one of you know in just along one of the alleys and how his mother was very concerned because they they lived near the dance halls and uh, I'm gonna, he didn't use the word brothel, but I'm gonna guess brothels. Uh, Steubenville at that time was known as Little Chicago for oh. its crime scene. It was, it was quite the, um, it was an it was active quite place. Organized. It was a very active place. It was very prosperous because of the mills. Um, and they had drawn workers from all over Eastern Europe, the Appalachian. Uh, the Appalachian area, all over. So it was an incredibly uh, vibrant, integrated place. Uh, the the school system was integrated before Brown v. Board, so which really set it apart from its neighbors because West Virginia was viciously segregated. Um, and he grew up, you know, the son of a of a mill worker, and he went off to Kent State, came back, was a teacher, social worker, and finally was principal. And when he was principal of the high school, he, he was then the keeper of the permanent records, mm. right, of Steubenville. Right. So he was able to go look up his own, but more uh, to the point, his father's. And his father was, you know, a very uh, hardworking, 
apparently very smart guy, but he went and looked up his father's permanent record on, uh, you know, a five by seven index card. And it said, poor student, no chance or little chance, poor Mm -hmm. student, little chance. And when he shared that with this room, everybody in the room just like had this frisson of, I think that's the right word, of emotion because they all were children or grandchildren of mill workers, all of them. They all had, uh, you know, forebears who had worked in the mills. And so this was all their story. And, and he was like, that, that foreclosing of his father's opportunities by the school you know, you could tell that wasn't going to happen on his watch. And it didn't, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are people who went through school in Steubenville and weren't happy. I mean, like you can't make necessarily everybody happy, but that was not going to happen on his watch. And he was determined to make sure that children had real opportunities, keeping in mind that, since that very prosperous time, uh, Steubenville has been denuded of industry. And, um, you know, it's now a very impoverished area. It's, the first time I went there, I just said, this is a really sad town. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a little less sad the, the last time I went because there's, a, there, there's some fracking going on nearby. So that's brought some jobs. There's um, a little hope of uh, uh, there. There was a plant in Mingo nearby Mingo that kind of reopened and started some some jobs. So there's a little bit of hope, and the the school folks are absolutely determined to be part of reviving the city. And so they've um, linked up with nearby airports to try and help students prepare for. Uh, aeronautical engineering jobs and um, with the hospitals, Pittsburgh isn't all that far to try and link up with some health career uh, jobs. So they're very determined to help students get middle-class jobs, either staying, they'd really like them to stay um, or stay nearby. And it's High I'm sorry. If I, I just go on and it's, on. No, it's actually I the story, the story is so <laughs> important. It's so important, and and it actually is a successful school district, right? I mean, so if you described and you stopped um, at one point, kind of mid-story, and asked people to make assumptions on the school district that aligned to the community, because as we know, school districts are often uh, products of zip code which is unfortunate and sad, and that's our job as educators to fight against. But um, this, is, this is not a school district that is suffering in the same way that maybe the town has in in the past. So they're a successful place, right? And probably aligned to the, the passion the systems of the superintendent and educators trying to make sure that schools are a pillar of that community. Absolutely. Um, so one time when I visited uh, Melinda Young as superintendent, she took me to a local Rotary Club. You know, she is very much a part of the community. And in fact, uh, so I've got a new podcast coming out that will 
look at how schools and districts are using the federal ESSER money to uh, address COVID needs. And I uh, talked with Melinda Young about what they're doing and they are, needless to say, very innovative about how they're using that money. Partly be, and partly part of why they're able to is they are so successful. So although they had some learning loss during you know the worst of the pandemic, they were able to identify it, address it quite quickly, and um, move on. And so they don't have enormous tutoring needs, or they've already addressed that through through all their other work. And so they are uh, building a STEM uh, building. Uh, that will connect with their high school and it will also house a federal uh, health clinic that um, was established to uh, to address health needs in in northern in the northern Appalachian area and um, the students are going to be able to shadow the doctors the dentists the and the nurse practitioners and so forth. So they're thinking really big about yeah. how they can really retune. And I'm, I, I'm always a little nervous about uh, career paths because I don't think it's the job of high schools to train welders. You know, that's the job of community colleges. I think there is a role for public education to do that, but it's very hard for public schools in general to keep up with the equipment needs, the technological needs. And also there's a lot of stuff kids need to learn just to be a citizen. And I I don't like the idea of just training kids for Amazon warehouse work or whatever. Um, but they have they have established a program called high schools that work, which is very mm -hmm. like attuned sure. to that question. And they are linking career training with college preparation. So it's not, it's not a career path or a college path. It's combined. And I think what she said was last year, Steubenville high school in a class of 160 or so 50 students graduated with a two-year degree, an associate's degree. A third of the students. A third of the students, uh, a little more than a third of the students, and they're, they're aiming for even more. Than, and they're aiming for every student taking at least one college class while they're still in high school. It's fantastic. So, so they, they, you know, they're, to me, that's the way to go, right? You, you give students... Uh, opportunities to see what what can come past high school to uh, a bunch of them are getting their pilot's license. Um, they they're working with JetBlue and other airlines to get uh, flight simulators uh, and and other kinds of things that will help them in the uh, aeronautical fields. You know, so you're doing that, but you're not precluding students from pursuing uh college education. So I think let, that seems great. <laughs> it, it is great. Well, I think, you know, the, um, I mean, I remember conversations, you know, every, every school district has this vision or a mission statement or a goal and so forth. And um, at, at some point in time in one of the districts, I remember us coming to a conclusion that, you know, it's the goal actually that when, when a child graduates, because they have to graduate, 
so that they graduate, that they get to decide that right. they have accumulated the kind of the enough skills, motivation, where they get to decide their path as opposed to a lack of skills deciding for them. Exactly. So, so the goal is they graduate to determine, I can go to college if I want. I may not want to. I may want to enroll in this other program because that's what I desire. As opposed to, well, I can't go to college, so therefore, they should decide and we will equip them so that they have uh, the ownership of their decision and the skill set to drive that future path, right? So um, I think it's a, it's a reason I liked Steubenville, right, to, to kind of lead about that. Now let's, let's shift to, uh, it's not necessarily a contrast, but one I really want to ask about Seaford in Delaware. Um, that was another s district that you studied and I think what really hit home for me was that uh, there's strong belief in equity, which is kind of the, the, the title of the chapter. Um, and, you know, it's a, store, a district of 3,500 students approximately, um, a, a different district uh, in a lot of ways than Steubenville, but also a very compelling story. Um, can, so can we take a trip from Steubenville Absolutely. to Delaware and... Talk to us about, about that story and that narrative and what you gleaned from that leadership um, as to how the, they created systems to focus on equity, which, by the way, is something we all talk about. We just sometimes have a, a challenge on actually delivering on. That's exactly right. So, so Seaford, Delaware, it's in Lower Delaware. And by the way, I sort of wasn't really attuned to the history of Lower Delaware or of Delaware, um, but I got totally sidetracked and I did a podcast um, called Segregation, Integration, and the Milford Eleven about a story that I stumbled upon um, that reflected the very um, hard past of Delaware. So Delaware was a slave state um, and it was a slave state through the Civil War, and it didn't uh, abolish slavery until the 13th Amendment was ratified in uh, whatever year that was, 1860-whatever. Um, and it itself did not ratify the 13th Amendment until 1903, I think it was. It was after, after the turn of the century. So, uh, you know, very complicated. Uh, the Southern or Lower Delaware was the area where there were the most enslaved people in Delaware. Uh, by the Civil War, most of the African Americans in Delaware were free and they were more in the North, but the, the ones who were enslaved were in Lower Delaware. So you've got this really complex picture. It was then a, it was then a Jim Crow state. It, um, it enshrined segregation in its constitution, not just in its laws, but in its constitution. So anyway, I got sort of sidetracked um, and I made a podcast about it. It's, there's a really interesting story about the, the first 11 uh, African-American students to enroll in a white high school in Lower Delaware. Uh, segregation, Integration, and the Milford 11. It's one of my favorite <laughs> podcasts. So um, anyway, so I I, uh, so Seaford is in Lower Delaware, mm -hmm. and it's it, that's all part of its past. The other part of its past was that it was the 
nylon capital of the world for many years through World War II and then after, and they then they were making Dacron. And then DuPont slowly uh, kind of disinvested and got rid of that plant. And so the plant managers and the researchers and the chemists and, you know, all the sort of highfalutin types who had been part of the DuPont kind of world down there, uh, they left. And it was a shock to the school system. And they kept sort of waiting for the good kids to come back. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, the kids who uh, did come were the children of new immigrants, many, many new immigrants from Haiti, South Central America, uh, the Philippines, who came to work in the poultry plant. So now the dominant industry is is poultry uh, and there's a hospital. So there's some health care. So that's like the larger situation. In 2013, it was the I think it was the lowest performing uh, district in the state, but I always qualify it by saying one of, just in case I'm missing something, mm -hmm. some kind of data. Um, two of its elementary schools were on the, were on the you know, yeah, the, the, the watch list, the naughty the, list, right? Every state has this list, that's right. <laughs> Improvement plus or whatever sure. they call it. Um, and the, a third was about to go on. And so this was, you know, very serious situation. Um, they had had three superintendents in a very short amount of time, I think four or five years. And then they hired Dave Parrington, who had been an assistant superintendent nearby in, uh, in Cesar Rodney district, um, which is named after an early uh, 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 colonial fighter, uh, Cesar Rodney. Um, and uh he came and you know he was really near retirement but he it was kind of like one last work adventure for him and he knew there were several openings that he could fill and he knew that if he got the right people in place the right systems in place that this the the district could really thrive and he did um so he brought with him um uh cory mickless dr cory mickless who had led several uh, Blue Ribbon elementary schools mm -hmm. and really understood reading instruction. That was the, the, the real skill that he, or the real knowledge base that he brought. He had been trained as a teacher in whole language. And then when he came to Delaware, it was more balanced literacy. So he had to learn a lot. And then during reading first, he um, he was a principal at that point, and he learned a lot about reading instruction during the reading first um, kind of era. So so that was what he brought. And then um, Dave Parrington was able to hire principals, and uh, he hired folks looking for. This is what he said he looked for. He looked for folks who could say. I don't know everything, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to get better. That's what he looked for in a, in a leader, in a school leader. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes what we want to see is principals who kind of know what they're doing and they mm -hmm. know everything about what they do. And again, that's not really possible. 
So what he was looking for was not someone who claimed to know what everything that needed to happen, but were willing to get better. And um, one of the things, so there were four elementary schools and three were in deep trouble. The fourth was kind of meh, you know, it was mm -hmm. like average for the state. It really was okay, but nobody would really write home about it. And that was the school that the savvy parents wanted to get their kids into because that was the best one, right? Yeah, it wasn't in trouble, so, right? Right. And so it had become, and it was a choice school. It, it's a complicated story, but it had become sort of skewed demographically. Not, it wasn't like it was an all white school or an all middle class school. It wasn't, but it, it didn't reflect the demographics of the full district. And he, Mr. Parrington, to his enormous credit, said that is not right. All our schools should represent our community. And he called in demo demographers from the University of Delaware to help help the district draw new lines. And he drew new lines. And th that probably, uh, you know, uh, creates a real uh, shiver down the spine of any superintendent. Even oh, yeah. Any Automatic anxiety based on what you just said. <laughs> I yeah automatic been anxiety. there yeah it makes it many people are sweating hearing this that's right oh yeah um and one of the things he did to make it a little easier was he split the schools so that uh one uh, two of them are k2 and two of them are three five so that the k2s feed into the three five and so that made it a little bit easier um and he had unexpected benefits from that that he talked about, which were that it was now easier for the kindergarten teachers to meet as teams, the first grade teachers to meet as teams, rather than being isolated in the four schools, they were now joined together in two schools and the two schools could meet together as well. So that created some real collaborative opportunities that hadn't been available or were harder to make available. Um, so that was a byproduct, but the, the core of it was creating equitable boundaries. And there were, there were a lot of um, unhappy people. And the person I knew best uh, was Sharon Brittingham, who grew up in Seaford and still lives in Seaford. And um, I had studied her school, which was not in Seaford, it was in Frankfurt. And she told me she, she really didn't think he was going to survive that politically. <laughs> Um, but he did. His yep. school board backed him up and his school board uh, president basically told parents, look, we're going to make we're going to hold him accountable. You're going to like these schools. You're going to no matter where your kid goes. And he survived and it is now thriving. It is one of the fastest improving districts in the state. And it's like on the way to I will say I don't think we've seen the data improve for the middle and high school the way we have for the elementary schools. Um, they're working on it. Uh, but of course, all the data is just so screwed up now because of COVID that it's very difficult to follow. But the years from when Dave Parrington arrived to till when he left 2019, um, there was just enormous improvement. I think basically 
when he arrived, something like a third of the students met state reading standards at third grade. And when he left, it was something like two thirds. And every group had improved. The uh, African-American uh, and Hispanic and low income and students with disabilities, they had improved fastest. Yes. But white students had improved as well. Yeah. So it's really a, a story of enormous improvement. And a lot is uh, due to the to the real commitment to equity, the belief in the kids and very knowledgeable, skilled leadership in improving reading instruction, um, which can't be, uh, you know, like that can't be sort of just downplayed. That was really core to their improvement. Well, there were, there were several themes in that district when I read about it, and reading instruction, yeah, obviously. But the other that you mentioned was uh, the, the search for a certain kind of leader. It wasn't the leader that, say, that was saying, I'm proficient as a right. leader for the following reasons. It's the leader who uh, was humble to say that I'm, I have more to learn, and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to maybe make mistakes, but right, somebody who is also... Uh, extremely committed. And then this, this other concept is that there's a leader willing to take some major risks and put uh, his or her, in this case, his job on the line to do something that is politically dangerous, right? You mess with calendars, you mess with boundaries, look out. Whether it's a small district or a large district, look out. And he did because it was the right thing to do for kids. So that was a theme that kind of slapped me in the face. Um, yeah. And I really appreciated you bringing out, um, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal examples in this book. So let me ask you this question, and we'll try to we'll wrap it up here. And uh, I promise you, I'm not going to bug you and say I'm not done. I'll do, let's do a third. Uh, right. So now I know you don't I'm, like I'm this just question. I'm really glad you read it so quick, carefully. And, I, I really, I really did. And in yeah. fact, this, I, I told you this poor book. It's 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 a mess. I can I can never loan it to anyone. So um, the I, I guess I know you mentioned in, in our first that you don't like to give advice to leaders because to your point, you know you haven't necessarily sat in that seat, right? You you study it, uh, but in the meantime, you learn a lot um, from these examples, and you know which is what you write about um, right now, based upon you know we're kind of in our COVID-ish environment, moving forward, looking at these districts, who are, by the way, not all rated as A districts, if you look them up on Zillow or you know some sort of, of an app, but they have done really, really great work and have huge improvement trends. What, um, what would you advise, not district leaders to do, but what would you advise them to go study, to focus okay. on, based upon your learnings, once again, it's like one of your last brass tacks advice to them. How would you kind of end our second series by advising them what to learn about? So I, we, are, we began this century as the era of data, kind of. Um, before No Child Left Behind, we really didn't have a lot of data that could help educators learn from other educators, because all the data was like siloed in these very um, difficult to get at formats. We now have data that's publicly available, and I'm convinced that the most important 
reason for all the data that we're, you know, collecting and reporting is exactly what you just said for educators to learn from other educators, to, to allow educators to expose expertise that they need. So, I mean, every leader can identify a number of problems, right? We have, we have a problem with our graduation rates. We have a problem with reading proficiency. We have a problem with math proficiency, whatever the problem sure. is. We have a problem with suspensions and expulsions. We have a problem with attendance. Uh, a, there are a lot of people with problems uh, of attendance at this point. So look at that data. You know, go and find another district that has improved on that metric that you're most concerned about, whatever that is. Um, I mean, I'm very concerned about test scores. That's what I look at. But there's a lot of other possible uh, metrics to look at. you know, we can't seem to retain our teachers of color. Who's done a better job mm-hmm. with that? Um, like, let me go talk to those folks and then really listen. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories from educators who are running just fabulous schools and they're happy to talk. They know they're doing something really important, right? Schools or districts. They know they're doing something really important. They'll give a day-long tour. And at the end of the tour, somebody will say, yeah, I, I really like that they have uniforms. Uh, we're going to get uniforms like these guys do. Well, okay, go get uniforms, but that's not going to help. <laughs> you know, like, it's, not a, it's not a really singular thing. There is no magic bullet. If there were a magic bullet, we would have solved all the education problems at this point. These are, every leader out there knows these are complex systems. You're all running cities and towns with lots going on. And um, the idea, I guess, so one piece of it is find other places that are doing better on the metric you're most concerned about right now, learn from them, and then provide the information to your folks so that they can make better decisions. You can't make all the decisions. It's impossible. Right. Um, if you try, you will become sclerotic. You will just lead sclerotic institutions. Everybody's waiting on the leader to make the decision about what phonics program to have or what, you know, what novel to teach or what, you know, uh, or how to, how to set up the, the uh, cafeteria, you know, like if, if the leaders are making all the decisions, it's very disempowering for the teachers and the staff members and the principals the job of the leader is really to provide the information so that everybody else can make better decisions every day. Does that, am I making sense? It makes terrific sense. And I I really appreciate your, your uh, willingness to describe what leaders uh, should look into and learn based upon your observations, as opposed to telling them how to do it. In fact, to your point, um, there's, there's no one way. If there was. There is no one way. If there that's, was. That's well, a plus and a minus. Right. It's a plus <laughs> and a minus. It, it is nuanced based upon the environment. 
And Based on, yeah, all the context. There's there's so much context, you know, community to community, and it's it's our job as leaders to actually, especially in this this new wave where no one really knows how to do this anymore, because there's so much newness in education that's going to unfold over the next decade. We have to learn to rely on one another and to truly listen, as opposed to just you know just send me the the bullet points on how you did it, that right. won't work. That won't work. I, I was in this wonderful school in uh, Arkansas once, and they they were they had this really complex, interesting plan about how to um, uh, how to uh, introduce Common Core standards. This was back in the, in that day, and um, they had built a whole thing based on their own program, which was direct. They they used direct instruction for reading and math in the early grades. And so they had a certain, you know, thing that they were building on and they were very high performing. And other schools would say, well, send us your binder with, you know, your materials. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we can send you the binder, but it ain't going to work. It's yeah. not going to work. It's not. And and notice what I'm not talking about. I Steubenville uses Success for All, which is a very highly scripted program. Seaford uses Bookworms, which is a highly scripted reading program. I think both of those, and, and this other school uses direct instruction, all of those are really powerful programs. They're useful programs. They can be really helpful to people. I didn't start by saying adopt Success for All or adopt Bookworms because it's not about a program. You can screw up programs. Anybody can screw up a program. I've been in a terrible school with a success for all program. Um, it's not about the program. It's about the ability of the educators to use the program properly. Agreed. So, Karen, thank you so much. Um, you're so generous with your time. And uh, I, I really appreciate you, you bringing the book to life in this discussion. Uh, I know our members will appreciate this and we'll continue to really push this out because we just think that you've done great work. And so it's our job to, um, as connective tissue, to help leaders connect to one another, but also to help them connect to really material that we think is going to help them. And this, this is that. So just know I, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you so much, Karen. Well, I think, I think you're on to something with these, you know, circles. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the learning you. circles. I, I think, you know, that's the right way to at least start thinking about it. And just so, so folks know if they don't have time to read because these are very busy folks you're talking to, I do have um, – I did profile those districts in a podcast called Extraordinary Districts. Extraordinary Districts. And so there you can hear the voices of Richard Bernalo and Melinda Young and uh, uh, Dave Parrington and Corey Miklas and teachers and principals. You can hear the, them talk about this. In, and it's, I think it's more powerful than listening to me. Well, on our website, uh, Karen, we'll, we'll put a link to these podcasts. Perfect. So, great. yeah, great. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Karen. Really appreciate you. Okay, All right, thank be you. Be well. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I didn't ask Karen to, um, I didn't pay her to, to basically promote what we're doing with our leadership circle. And we believe leaders need to learn with, from other leaders.
We say don't lean alone. Circles are better than rows. Uh, I appreciate her acknowledging the, the intent that we have to collaborate. Um, her book is great, but what really makes this work come alive is when educators sit around a table and discuss it and help one another. So um, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, be well.